Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Leonora Walters, and joining me today are Rosie Carr, Deputy Editor of Investors Chronicle, and special guest Peter Day, partner at Killican Company. Younger retirement savers have a long investment horizon, so in theory should be able to hold higher risk, higher return investments such as equities. But this week's portfolio clinic features a 29-year-old saver who thinks he might have too much in equities. Peter, even if you have a long time until you retire, should your portfolio be entirely composed of equities? My view is that you shouldn't have 100% in equities. I don't think I'd advise anyone to have all their eggs in any particular basket for a number of reasons. Firstly, whilst you can think that your time horizon may be 40 years out or or similar, circumstances can change. Um, One might need to draw upon the money sooner than one plans to, whether that's uh, sad matters like divorce or whether it's a move overseas or just a a family member might need to to borrow some money. That money that you've set aside with a, a plan of not needing to touch for 40 years, that plan may change and therefore I think it's appropriate to have an element of diversification in the portfolio, have a bit of a a contingency plan to to ensure that you cover all bases. I think also we have quite a recent um, example elsewhere around the world looking at Japan where if one had said in the late 1980s that you should have 100% in Japan 25 years on I I suspect you'll be somewhat disappointed. Um, Their market's still significantly down on the levels which were achieved then and so I think I would be careful from having all of your portfolio investment in equities. Okay, so how, how high risk should it be, say, if, if you got around 40 years to retirement? I think it's, it's always difficult to um, look at risk as such. I mean, when we're talking about risk, is it pure volatility or, or, or um, how are we measuring that risk? I, I suppose when you're looking at your retirement plan, what you want to do is you're setting aside money now that you don't need today uh, and you hope that it will cover any eventualities or liabilities that you'll have further down the line. And so uh, I think you can afford to invest in asset classes which provide you with good um, inflation protection, which would certainly include equities, but I don't think I'd want to be purely in invested in uh, in equities. So I think you can take on uh, higher levels of risk by exposing yourself to a, a higher percentage of equities, but not out and out pure high risk in my view. What sort of other investments could you take on to protect you against inflation? And, um, you know, what other kind of investments should you generally diversify, um, let's say a long term retirement portfolio with? Okay, so I suppose I think we've said that maybe inflation's one of the the bigger threats to one's individual wealth over an extended period. So I'd be looking at asset classes that are going to protect me against the inflation eroding the real value of my money. So other asset classes I'd be looking at maybe property, which we've seen can be a um, a, a good um, hedge against inflation. Maybe index-linked bonds as an alternative as well. Um, and then within the equity space, ensuring that you've got some proper geographical diversification and not so dependent on one individual country. So whether that's having exposure to emerging markets or other uh, developed nations around the world, um, I think that's important, as well as within equities, moving up and down the the scale of small caps and and large caps, potentially. Property is quite a diverse asset class, and there's a number of ways to access it. I mean, how would you suggest people access it? 
I think that's a very good point. I think with property, um, in general, in the UK specifically, um, many people have their main asset in residential property. So you may well have good cover in that area already. So I'd probably be looking at other areas of the, the marketplace, whether that's commercial property, whether that's student accommodation, other sorts of areas. Actually, there's very big timing issues, and that's not something I'd necessarily be recommending at the moment, but other areas of property. And you can do that through various listed entities these days. So whether that's in the closed-ended market for um, the, the property funds, whether that's some of the big uh, open-ended funds, unit trusts and OICs um, of commercial property as well. Okay, and um, in terms of other investments, you obviously mentioned index and bonds and um, diverse equities. I mean, what are your favoured ways for accessing those kind of assets? Um, uh, the index-linked bond one it is a challenging one, I must say, at the moment. I, I think what we would all very much like to, to uh, have in place is a, a medium-dated, index-linked, low-cost uh, ETF, but it is very difficult to, uh, to facilitate that. So uh, you can own index-linked government bonds, which can be very tax-efficient. Um, you can access a number of more recently-issued index-linked corporate bonds, albeit it, it is important to be aware of some of the tax implications of those ones in that uh, you may be subject to income tax on the indexation. So you probably only want to hold those sorts of things within the, the tax-free wrappers of a, a pension or within an ISA or something like that. Okay. Now, you talked about diversification. How many holdings should you have um, in uh, a portfolio of this kind? Um, Again, I think if we're looking um, at equities to start with, um, we go back potentially to a modern portfolio theory of how many equities you might want to hold within a, a basket to ensure that you have proper diversification and to sure, ensure that if one were to go slightly wrong, it doesn't uh, totally destabilise your portfolio and make it difficult to come back from. Uh, and if I dust down my university books, it would be suggesting that you have to have a minimum of about 15 holdings in order to ensure that you have a proper spread across different sectors. Um, I, I think equally, you possibly don't want to diversify too far. Uh, one of the UK's best known fund managers, Terry Smith, uh, has comments about diver diversification, whereby yeah. Yeah. he would say that um, by having too many holdings, you start to lose focus, you start to invest in some of the less good companies. Um, in, in his portfolio, as an example, he has around 30 holdings, which I yeah. think is a reasonable benchmark. Yeah, I think he once said, actually, magic number's 23 or something. So, yeah. Go. I'll leave it to him. I <laughs> okay. think he's a pretty good hand yeah. on it. Mm. Presumably, the, if you're a fund investor, then you can have a bit less again, because obviously a fund is a basket of equities, so perhaps you don't need whatever, 25 to 30 funds. I would agree wholeheartedly with that. I think, as you say, each fund is probably at the very least going to have something like 25 to 30 holdings uh, if it's a regulated fund uh, anyway. And, and Terry Smith's fund would probably be one of the most focused of it at around the 30 mark. Um, the more traditional funds will maybe have 50 to 100 fund, uh, 50 to 100 stocks. And in some cases, many more if they're exposed to the, the smaller companies end of the, the market. So in itself, I would hope that you've got um, decent diversification within the fund and therefore I don't think you need anything like um, 30 holdings. You could probably mm. cut that in, in half, I should imagine. Right, so maybe, I don't know, up to 15 funds. That would be my that view. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there anything you should particularly avoid if you're building this sort of 40-year-ish retirement portfolio? 
Yeah, it sounds very dangerous, but at this time, I, I would suggest having too much exposure to cash is probably um, a little bit of a dangerous strategy in that if we look at the, the figures over the long term, whilst cash provides you with stability, um, it's tangible and you can access it at, at any time, it doesn't offer much in the way of a real return. I think if we look over the, the longest data, you're probably getting a real return of between half a percent and one percent over the longer period. So um, I would argue that if you really can lock away money for, for that extended period of 40 years, then cash is probably something I'd be looking to avoid. Clearly, you need to make sure that you've got enough for short-term eventualities and uh, to cover your near-term needs. But as far as the investment portfolio is concerned, I'd be looking to have a much more limited exposure to cash. Okay. And um, I mean, this is obviously a long time period, so presumably it's not going to be static. How often should you review and maybe rebalance the portfolio? My view is that probably... A year is an appropriate time to be reviewing a portfolio. I'd want to look at it every year. And also, importantly, if your circumstances change. So if you have a change of job, if you have children, if you get married or you get divorced, I think those sorts of fundamental changes uh, might also cause a review. So uh, I'd look to review things every year, but then possibly more often if an event turns up. Okay, some useful points for younger savers there. Over the last year, some major changes have been made to inheritance rules which will have significant effects on how families should plan to pass on assets to the next generation. Rosie has been looking at these changes and what the effects will be. Rosie, first of all, what changes have been made and why are they so significant? Hi, Leonora. Well, there are two changes that have an impact on how families inherit the assets. Um, The first was to the intestacy laws and this came in at the end of 2014. Um, under the new rules now, the spouse is left in a much stronger position. He or she will inherit everything. If there are children, um, some of the assets, I think around a quarter, will now go to the children. Previously, under the old rules, um, the, the deceased's parents and siblings also had a claim and could have inherited some of the assets. That no longer happens. Um, cohabiting partners, however, are in the same situation as before. They won't inherit um, automatically if there's no will in place. Um, But the other really exciting change has been the introduction of a new residential nil rate band. Um, This will help thousands of people going forward. Um, I think, you know, soaring house prices are the reason why so many people are now falling into the inheritance tax net. If you look three years ago, even uh, maybe 18,000 estates were paying inheritance tax this year. That number is expected to be about 35,000. It'll probably be in excess of that. In 2020, in five years' time, the number was expected to be 63,000 people. So you can see where this is going. Now George Osborne has applied the brakes to that. Um, the residential nil rate band will mean that um, family homes can be passed down, more family homes, not every family home. Certainly in the southeast, where soaring house prices are a real issue, um, it'll be a great help. Yeah, I mean, these sound really useful. Um, Will people still have to carefully plan how to pass on their assets or can people not worry about that so much now? Well, I think a lot of people can breathe a sigh of relief, but you have to remember the new, the change won't happen until 2017 and even then it's only going to be £100,000 extra per person. That'll rise again in 2018, 225000 then it'll go up again to 150, finally to 175,000 in the year 2020. After that, it will just rise in line with inflation. So it could be that in five, six years' time, people start having a problem again with trying to get the house through the inheritance tax net. But it, it's a massive help. I mean, it really is. And it's all to do with the family home. 
it doesn't cover assets which aren't related to property. It has to be a residential property. It has to be um, a home that the deceased has lived in. The other really important condition is that it has to pass down to children or grandchildren, including foster children or adopted children. It can't be passed over to um, siblings. So if you have assets, let's say a portfolio of shares that's worth £800,000, you cannot use the new allowance to cover some of that. You'd only be able to use the standard nil rate band of £325,000. Okay, so it doesn't cover everything. No, it's um, just to do with the family home, really. Yeah, so there's situations where people still need to make plans. So, um, I mean, what are the key ways you can keep your inheritance tax to a minimum? Well, I suppose the goal for most people would be to, um, to try to keep their estates within the nil rate bands. So, I mean, if your estate is worth maybe £400,000, really you would be aiming to get it down to £325,000, certainly until 2017, and then the other allowance will come into play. You can, you know, you're allowed to give away cash sums of money. You can give people £3,000 a year um, without any tax penalties. Um, You can give £250 cash to anybody you like. You can give £5,000 to a child if they're getting married. You can also give away assets. I mean, you can give, if you own a buy-to-let property, you could give it to somebody else. There is a capital gains tax risk at that point where you'll be taxed on the gain in the value since you acquired it. However, capital gains tax is only charged at either 18 or 28%, and it's only on the gain in the, va- in the value of the asset, whereas inheritance tax is charged at 40% on the value over and above the nil rate band. I mean, for every £50,000 over the £325,000 threshold, you're looking at paying the state having to pay £20,000 in tax. Yeah, that's quite a lot. Um, Peter, do you have any suggestions on how people can keep their beneficiaries' inheritance tax to a minimum? Sure. I think early planning is the, the key to it. Um, I think one never knows when the fateful day will come, and so it is very, very difficult. But I think planning from an early stage, looking properly at the cash flows that you might require, looking at uh, the the costs of things like long-term care and actually putting that into your plan. I think the trap that most people seem to fall into who pay a large amounts of inheritance tax are that they're, they're very nervous about those long-term care costs and therefore they hoard money, not knowing when that last day may come. But one can, with proper advice, plan for that day and work out how much that long-term care is going to cost and therefore set aside the appropriate assets for it. There have also been a, a number of different changes recently in regulation which have helped. So one is specifically with regard to pensions. So whereas traditionally um, pensions were maybe looked at in a, a poor light in terms of a longer term picture and that you might surrender those assets through an annuity to a, a life insurance company. Now because pension assets can be passed mm-hmm. down uh, to the next generation, what we're seeing a lot of people look to do is actually maintain their, their pension assets because they fall outside of the estate for inheritance tax benefits they might look to use up their assets um, which are in their estate whilst they're alive, accepting that they leave the assets in the pension. If they need to draw upon them, they're theirs. But if they don't, then they can pass down tax efficiently to the next generation. Another thing that might be worth bearing in mind for for some investors um, who who can afford to take on a slightly higher risk profile is looking at those assets which benefit from the business property relief. So 
Um, there are investments, for instance, the AIM market, the junior market in the stock market, uh, that if you've held investments in the AIM market, which qualify for business property relief for two years at the point of death, they fall outside of the estate for inheritance tax. So this is clearly aimed at those who maybe have slightly larger estates and those that can afford to take on the higher risk mm. associated with it. But, but still, it, it can be uh, an asset class which is inheritance tax friendly. There is just one mm. other point about the yeah. residential nil rate band, which mm. is that if your whole estate is worth in excess of £2 million, the relief is tapered. So if in 2017 your estate is worth um, £2,200,000, you won't get any of the right. residential nil rate okay. band. So there's an incentive there to keep the estate to below um, £2 million. Yeah. yeah, using some of these methods that yes. yeah, you, you mentioned before. Okay. Um, now, one thing that strikes me about all this, it's all very family orientated, isn't it? Um, do you think the new laws are unfair because not everyone will benefit? Um, well, I think you have to remember that it is all about the family home. Um, I mean, the soaring house prices, as I've said, are the reason why so many people are being caught in the net. You know, I mean, at one point it was very straightforward. Most families managed to pass the house down to the next generation. And that isn't the case anymore. So what he's tried to do is to shelter the family home. Now, if there aren't any children, you can't really argue that somebody's losing out. It's a question of passing it down to the next generation. I mean, a married couple who don't have children can pass property and the whole estate. There are no kind of tax penalties and they don't have to worry about the nil rate band. So in that sense, the family unit is protected. If one spouse dies, the other one inherits tax free. If there are no children, well, then it's children who don't exist who aren't benefiting. Hmm. Peter, what do you think? Um, I mean, people who you know not part of a family unit. Yeah, I mean, I do? think one could argue yeah. it's slightly unfair. Hmm. For me, this was brought about um, on the back of a, an election. Um, hmm. There was a lot of um, concerns out there um, in many of the traditional Conservative Party voters that inheritance tax levels had been frozen for a very long time and because of the rising house prices, that were, especially in the southern half of the UK, that was having a, a huge impact. And so in advance of an election, um, the Conservative Party made noises about increasing the threshold up to a million pounds. And so I think this is one of their ways of trying to, to bring in place a, a policy which isn't costing them too much in the, the grand scheme of things and, and appeasing those um, uh, those loyal supporters of theirs. So um, I think we, we've mentioned it doesn't come into force for uh, another couple of years and it comes in on a scaled basis out to 2021. Mm -hmm. So when we take into consideration inflation out to 2021 and the possible house price rises, I, I don't think it's going to be a, as big an impact as uh, people may be looking at at the the moment and also as we all know things can have a habit of changing. Okay um, on the subject of inheritance another issue um, that's probably been in the news a bit more because some high profile cases is um, wills. Um, how necessary is it to make a will and um, just thinking about recent cases um, does it mean anything? <laughs> <laughs> it is important to write a will I mean otherwise the state's going to decide what happens to your wealth um, a will gives you a chance to protect your dependents and certainly in this kind of modern age when people have perhaps more complicated relationships it means that you can provide for children from an earlier relationship um, and if you're cohabiting um, it's essential to write a will because your partner could be left um, in dire straits without the will it, you know it's a very crude safety net the intestacy laws 
So ideally, you would have a will and things would pass the way you want them to. The other point about a will, though, is that people write a will and then tend to think, well, I've done that, don't need to look at it again. But you do, in fact. I mean, you could write a will and then survive for 50 years. And in that time, everything will change. Your relationships, the value of your assets, the value of money, um, the inheritance tax laws, everything could change drastically and make your will completely meaningless. So, yeah, reviewing it every few years rather than every 10 to 15 years is probably a good idea. Peter, do you have any views on, on what people need to do there? And, um, you know, what about these cases where wills have been overturned in court? Um, it's certainly our rule of thumb has always been everyone uh, who has assets should really have a will in place. And I think that still stands. However, some of the, the recent developments do, do concern us, as you say. If, if changes can be made after the event when you have no control over them, then uh, that is difficult. I, I think it's difficult to know how far that will rumble on and what changes will take place. I would still stick with the original thought that it is important to have that will as a, a safety net. It is. I mean, you can you can kind of, I suppose, supplement or support your will with a letter of intent explaining why you have decided to do something to reduce the chance of somebody contesting your will um, and having it overturned, as it were. In fact, I think the only way, Peter, is that you can challenge your will is if you are a dependent and if you can show that you are kind of in need. In that case, the court will probably support you. Um, if you're not a dependent, you've probably got zero chance of changing somebody's will. Some... Uh things to think about there. We've been looking at um, CF Woodford Equity Income, um, Neil Woodford's first fund, which he launched just over a year ago, and which we've added to our IC Top 100 funds list of um, favoured funds. Now, this fund's performed very well so far, and not surprisingly, it's also very popular. Good performance and a star manager can't dispute that. But this means it now has assets worth more than six billion. Now that can be a problem because when funds grow, size performance can suffer. And reasons for this include the fact that the fund can't take meaningful positions in smaller companies. Peter, are you concerned about the size of CF Woodford equity income? I'm not particularly concerned, actually. I, I think depending on the strategy that an investor employs, the size of money is very important. I think it's important to look back at the, the past and also look at the strategy which Neil Woodford looks to, to undertake. Firstly, if we look back at where he came from, uh, Invesco Perpetual, when he was there, uh, he was responsible across the board for managing towards £30 billion of assets when you can take into consideration the Invesco Perpetual Income, the High Income Fund, um, the Edinburgh Investment Trust and the, the other mandates that he was responsible for managing. So whilst £6 billion is a, a colossal sum of money, it's something that he is very much used to. Um, and what we found at Invesco was it didn't necessarily affect the performance that he achieved, even when he was managing a, a considerably larger amount of money. So I'm not hugely concerned uh, about it. Also, I think it's important to look at his style of investment. He's not an active trader, and therefore he's not looking to get into positions and out of them very quickly. Uh, his average holding period is, is well in excess of three years. Um, in many cases, it will be a lot more than that. So um, market liquidity isn't possibly as important to him on a short-term basis as it might be um, other investors. Also, I think his style is, in some cases, quite contrarian. Um, so if we look back to the 
technology days. Uh, he had very little exposure to the technology, um, media, telecom sectors um, when everyone was trying to, to buy into those sectors. And at that time, he was buying into things like the tobacco sector, which were very unloved and everyone was selling out of. So it gave him the ability to buy into those sectors at a time when no one else wanted to own them. And therefore, being a contrarian in style does help when he's managing a, a large amount of money. Okay. Is there anything that does concern you about the fund? I think when we look at a, an all-star fund manager such as Neil Woodford, I believe he is the driving force there. Whilst he has a team of four senior fund managers who he's worked with for an extended period of time and they all have their role within the team, I personally believe that Neil Woodford is an important driving force there. So that would be one concern I've got. I think people have raised doubts over whether he's now investing in different fields more than he might have done in the past. So perhaps in the public domain, he's best known for investing in some of the defensive elements of the market. So whether it's um, the tobacco companies that I I touched on or the pharmaceutical companies. But he has, for an extended period, invested in smaller early stage companies. Um, At Invesco, I believe at the point that he uh, resigned, they had about £1.5 billion invested in the early stage companies. So whilst some people have labelled it a a change of strategy for him and maybe um, placed thoughts that he may struggle to do something differently in the way that uh, another high profile fund manager has maybe failed in the past, moving from something um, uh, into a portfolio that was completely different for him, Neil Woodford has invested in the smaller uh, cap market for an extended period. And whilst um, I I don't have the, the specific figures for that, I think speaking to them, the returns they achieved from their smaller early stage investments were outweighed those from the larger side of the portfolio. And so on that basis, given that he averaged returns approaching 15% a year um, in his Invesco days, then I think we can see he's had great success in the smaller cap end of the market. Okay, so is it still a good investment option, even at six, seven billion then? For me, it is. Yeah, Yeah, I I would still happily invest in it today. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Rosie Carr, Deputy Editor of Investors Chronicle, and Peter Day, partner at Killican Company. You can read more about asset allocation for retirement portfolios, inheritance tax, and CF Woodford Equity Income Fund in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.